Hey, welcome to You Had Me at Black. I'm Martina Abrahams Olunga. It feels so good to be back behind the microphone and sharing stories with you all. And I am so excited to introduce you to Natal. It's a podcast docuseries about having a baby while black. You know, black maternal and perinatal health is something that is very important to me personally and the entire You Had Me at Black team. So we produced Natal in partnership with The Woodshaw and with support from the USC Annenberg Center for Health Journalism and the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. You can subscribe to Natal today, wherever you get your podcast, to hear new episodes every other Wednesday. And don't worry, we'll play them all right back here on You Had Me at Black. Without further ado, here is Natal. And so I wanted to express my concerns from that point moving forward to time of delivery. I need to know what your protocols are. What is the process? What can I expect from each doctor's appointment that I come into? How can I prepare for each doctor's appointment? You know, some of the basics. What are some of the tests? When do these tests happen versus show up to a doctor's appointment? Okay, we're going to do this test. No, I'd like to know what's going to happen before. And I'd like you to explain it to me so I can let you know if I want that or not. But that's not really how hospitals usually work. They're used to people coming in and you have whatever done. You're listening to Natal. You're listening to Natal. You are listening to Natal. You're listening to Natal, a podcast about having a baby. Having a baby. Having a baby while Black. Hey, y'all. Welcome back to Natal. I'm Gabrielle Horton. If you've been tuned into Natal this season, you know that we've spent a lot of time talking about what care really looks like for Black birthing parents across the country. Like Brittany Patterson, the parent at the top of the episode, we've had a whole bunch of questions about what prenatal visits, doctor interactions, and even delivery can or should look like. And so far, we've seen how much that care varies depending on your location, insurance, and even income. With 99% of babies born in hospitals, we've also gotten a pretty good look at what birth looks like for the majority of Black parents. We've heard from them about the abundance of hope they place in their labor and delivery teams. Hope that their OBGYNs and nurses will help them have a healthy pregnancy. Hope that they'll be treated with respect and care. Hope that their questions will be met with answers, confidence, and honesty. For some parents, hospital deliveries have gone really well. For others, not so much. With the stakes as high as they are for Black birthing parents, we can't continue to accept this variation in care as normal. So what if I told you that there are models of care that don't center the OBGYN and hospital staff as the only decision makers during a family's pregnancy? What if I told you that there are models of care that emphasize collaboration, wellness, community, and even self-advocacy? Models that welcome questions about the process, tests, and protocols. In this episode, we're going to hear Brittany's experience with one of these alternative care models, what it's like to not find what you're looking for, and the search for prenatal options outside of the hospital setting. And we're also going to talk to Demetra Sariki, a midwife in Colorado, to better understand the critical role of Black birth workers. Their expertise and training have sustained our communities since we got to this country in 1619. But first, let's start in California with Brittany's story. 
My name is Brittany. I live in Santa Clarita, and I'm a proud mama of baby boy Roderick, and we call him Ro, and this is my needle story. In 2017, Brittany and her partner Rod found out they were pregnant. I was really excited to become a mom, but at the same time, not rushing it, wanting to take my time with it. And so when I did find out that I was pregnant, it was a surprise and it was unplanned. And so finding out that I was pregnant was definitely nerve wracking. At the same time, it was just a blessing. And so I received it and just moved forward and was excited. And my partner, I think he felt the same way. Definitely nervous and felt a little bit overwhelmed, especially being a man wanted to fatherhood. Like his concerns are a little bit different than mine. Once Brittany reached the end of her first trimester, the couple was excited to share the good news with their family back in Ohio. You know, we had fun with it too. We just flew home, didn't tell anyone, and surprised everybody. And it was a lot of fun. And we recorded most of those reactions, which is awesome. I was able to put it together into a video and I have like this nice compilation of like, all the surprise reactions. So I love that I have that and I'll be able to share that with Rose when he gets older. I think that initially the first thing is okay, I need to I, I need to make a doctor's appointment. And then of course we did have the conversation around finances, uh, living situation, and just, you know, just all those normal thoughts that come up. Okay, how do we, from here, now we have a baby coming in nine months, you know, what do we need to do? So it's a lot of a lot of thoughts around finances. The couple was making their way through their pregnancy to-do list. But when it came time for Brittany's first prenatal appointment, things didn't go so well. And then we um, had a doctor's appointment with OBGYN and she was not black. Um, and she was just less than enthused. I'm not sure if she was having a bad day. Who knows? Um, but we tried our best to connect with her. Like I'm, I'm a people person, so... Any person I'm talking to, I'm going to ask questions and get to know them a little bit. And I tried my best to do that. And she was just not, she wasn't for it. <laughs> and so she just kind of was just doing the standard procedure. And I just felt like it was very mechanical. There was no feeling really involved in it, in the whole process. And, you know, we were excited at that point, especially me. So I didn't really let any of that get in the way of how I felt. But just afterwards, I'm like, that was not okay. That was not cool. It wasn't a cool experience. And I even asked Rod about like how he felt because the whole time she never made eye contact with him. And she also, she didn't, I wouldn't say she suggested, she just said, and just so you're aware, uh, you don't necessarily have to come to all the, the appointments. They become monotonous. And, you know, it's the same old thing. And right there, I just didn't agree with that. Like, it shouldn't be the same. If it's the same, then I feel like you as the, the OBGYN, is, you're doing something wrong. I have a life growing inside of me. So every time I come, my stomach is growing, different feelings come up, you know, it shouldn't be the same thing. And so I felt like that was her way of politely saying that she would probably feel more comfortable if he wasn't in the room. And I strongly disagree with that. Even though her body was going through all these changes, it was really important for both Brittany and Rod to feel seen, heard, and cared for during their prenatal visits. After all, they both made this baby and they were both eager to meet their baby with every bit of information and resource available to them. They wanted to learn, grow, ask questions, and enjoy the pregnancy. They just wanted their OBGYN to feel the same. And uh, so I just let the nurses know that I never wanted to have an appointment with her again. And they, like, not to book me with her. And I requested that they book me with the OBGYN who did my pap smear. Um, it was a similar situation. She was more jolly, I'll say, like more bright, 
but she had more of the hat of I'm the doctor. And so this is how, you know, I'm running the show. This is how things are going to go. Therefore, I know what's best allowed me to lead this process. And it was just frustrating because she would interrupt, like just in her mind, just thinking, oh, yeah, I know what you're going to say. And it's like, well, no. And even if you do, let me get this out. So that right there, I felt like, well, if you continue to interrupt me, you're not respecting what I have to say. You don't want to hear me. You're not listening. In between those appointments, I had done so much research and my concern had grown for just how the hospital system worked. By this point, Brittany had seen two OBGYNs. Neither of them made her feel cared for. In addition to all the Google searches and reading, Brittany had recently watched The Business of Being Born, a 2008 documentary produced by 90s talk show host Ricky Lake. Maternity care in the United States is in crisis. People don't have the information. Medical decisions are being made for monetary and legal reasons, not because they're good for the mother and the baby. The film focuses on New York City and explores a history of obstetrics, midwifery care, and the economics of childbirthing. And it gave Brittany a whole lot more to think about. So that just kind of brought up all these emotions. And so I wanted to express my concerns and ask about, like from that point, moving forward to time of delivery, I need to know what your protocols are. What is the process? What can I expect from each doctor's appointment that I come into? How can I prepare for each doctor's appointment? What are some of the tests? When do these tests happen? Versus show up to a doctor's appointment. Okay, we're going to do this test. No, I'd like to know what's going to happen before. And I'd like you to explain it to me so I can let you know if I want that or not. But that's not really how hospitals usually work. They're used to people coming in and you have whatever done. As much as Brittany cared about the data and every single step of the process, she also cared about being cared for. This was her first baby. And Brittany was in California, thousands of miles away from her family. But more than anything, this mom-to-be just wanted to know that her hospital team saw her as a whole person whose questions, concerns, and feelings mattered. And so throughout my entire process, I felt like I never got that uh, from any healthcare staff. I never got anyone to say, you know what, Brittany, how are you feeling? I see that you've been working really hard and I'm really impressed. I'm really proud of you that you're taking an active role. I love that you're leading in your pregnancy experience. I think it's so beautiful. And I just want to check in with you. How are you feeling? Because I know it's a lot. You're growing a baby inside of you. Nobody ever did that. And I was able to get that support from my mother um, who lives out of state. And I was able to get that support from Vlad, my partner. And that was helpful, but it's still, you know, with my mom being away, it's like you still kind of want that motherly love in a way. And I saw it in some of the research that I was doing or watching videos and seeing how other midwives would care for their patients. And I felt it through a phone call that I had with a midwife, a local midwife who owns a birth center out here in Santa Clarita. I got off the phone with her and I cried because that was like the feeling and connection that I was looking for that was missing. And it's so simple. It's just listening. And her, she goes, oh my gosh, congratulations. This is your first baby. Oh, wow. Like you are just in for a treat. It is, it's going to be so amazing. Like you're in for the time of your life and I'm so excited for you. And she gave me some tools some resources to then go and do my own research. And, you know, it was just great. And I'm like, why, why couldn't I have had this at the hospital? Brittany's question was so valid. Why was her experience with the OBGYNs so different than this short call with the midwife? Coming into natal, I had very little knowledge about this larger birth worker community, let alone midwives. Certainly, I had heard of them, but I didn't really know what they did and why they mattered. 
As you might recall from episode two, midwifery practice in the U.S. is not just some new trendy buzzword. Up until the mid-20th century, when OBGYNs and hospitals became must-haves for delivery, Black healthcare providers, also known as granny midwives, provided medical, emotional, and physical care. And more often than not, they were caring for poor and rural pregnant parents, Black and white, throughout the South. These trusted healers were trained to serve their communities when slavery, Jim Crow, desegregation, and sheer economics made it nearly impossible for families to receive adequate care. Today, midwives are required to complete a midwifery education program and meet rigorous qualifications to be legally registered to practice. And for many Black midwives, this work is personal. My name is Demetra Sariki, but my clients call me Mimi. Demetra is a Black woman, wife, and mother of four. She's also a certified professional midwife in her hometown of Colorado Springs. There, she runs a Mother's Choice Midwifery, a private practice. So how I got here was, you know, being a teenage mom and caring for my friends who were in the same school as me as a teenage mom. You know, some of us didn't have family support. Some of us didn't have partner support. And so that is where the seed was planted to do this work. I didn't know what a midwife was. I didn't know what it would look like to be more than a support person, but I always knew my place was in that realm of supporting birthing people. I always knew that at a very young age. There are several types of midwives that vary by state, training, and licensure status. Midwives provide a full range of primary healthcare services for childbearing people. They include family planning and pregnancy, birth, and postpartum care. It's almost like if your OBGYN was a trusted neighbor who served all the expecting parents in the area, you know? In 2018, researchers confirmed what many birth workers already knew to be true, which is that integrating midwifery care into regional health systems is strongly associated with lower rates of C-sections, preterm births, and maternal and infant death. But even with this long history and the research to back it up, midwives still remain on the margins of maternity care in the U.S. Some states don't even acknowledge them as legitimate practitioners. And in others, they're not even allowed to work in hospitals. And if we've learned anything about how our medical system treats Black birthing parents, especially now, during a global health pandemic, we know that this collaborative, parent-centered approach is as essential today than ever before. Like when you call an OB's office and you're like, I'm eight weeks pregnant, you might be super excited, you might be nervous, you might be anxious, you might be unsure, right? And it's like, okay, when was your last period? (laughs) You know, Um, okay, well, this is when we're going to see you. And when you pick up the phone and you call a midwife and you say to me, um, hey, you know, I'm looking for a midwife, I'm pregnant. The first thing out of my mouth is congratulations. Congratulations. I don't think that we do that enough um, in a society, uh, as specifically in black and brown communities, just really acknowledging that you are pregnant and this is a time of celebration. It shouldn't be a time of fear. It shouldn't be a time of you being afraid of being judged um, because there's a lot of that. Um, It can come from your community and your family. When you are in the care of a midwife, you are seen as a human. 
you are met at a very humanistic level of care. You're not an incubator. You are not a vehicle. You are a pregnant person. Your life is valued and your baby's life is valued. So much of Demetra's advocacy lies in her commitment to removing barriers to care for Black childbearing folks. She makes sure that young parents aren't navigating pregnancy without a support system like she was nearly 20 years ago. A good amount of the work that I do is for folks who are seeking home birth. However, the practice itself offers two types of service. So um, home birth is one, uh, but the other is our prenatal open access. And the prenatal open access was created solely based on the voices of the community for folks who were looking for a perinatal care provider who was of color or specifically a black person, um, but fearful to have their babies in the home and wanting to still have that hospital birth experience, but recognizing how important it is to have a provider who looks like them, who can meet them where they are, to have an environment in which they don't need to code switch. And so that's what the prenatal open access is. Now, that was the kind of energy Brittany wanted to feel from her hospital providers. That one phone call let her know that it was, in fact, possible for her to receive the type of support she deserved. If you're like me, right about now, you're probably thinking, this sounds awesome, but what does it cost? So let's talk numbers real quick. According to the Center for American Progress, the average out-of-pocket cost for a hospital birth is $4,500 with insurance. But let's say you don't have insurance. You're looking at a price tag of roughly $30,000. But what about midwifery care? What does that cost? Midwifery care in an out-of-hospital setting is, is quite pricey. Um, that's why it looks like it caters to the upper echelon of, of communities. Um, so for here in Colorado, for example, um, most, what you're going to find the most is anywhere from $3,000 to $5,000 out of pocket. That fee includes prenatal care, midwifery and nurse care during labor and delivery, and oftentimes home visits after birth. But for parents like Brittany, who simply want a midwife versus an OB to manage their prenatal care, that cost can be even lower. Because midwifery care isn't always covered by health insurance and prices vary by practitioner, some midwives offer sliding scale, pay-per-visit, and payment plan options to ensure that families aren't going broke just to have a baby. So it's $40 per visit. So you come in, you see me, it's $40. Um, and then that goes down once you hit 36 weeks, because obviously I'm seeing you more frequently. Um, so that goes down, I believe it's 25 um, until you have your baby and then you go to the hospital, you come back to me and then the face-to-face -face visits are 20 bucks. So the goal with the prenatal open access was not to create a cost barrier. It was to remove a cost barrier. Like I really had to think about how can I work outside of systems and structures because the systems and structures that are in place are not working and our outcomes aren't better. So it, that was really, really important not to create another financial burden. No, I don't require full payment all at once. Um, 100% of my families are on payment arrangements and because of the cost, it's doable. The last thing I want to do is create a circumstance or a situation where a family cannot receive the care that they need because of finances. To me, that's just, 
it's inhumane. It is, it's not right. Ethically, it's not right. Even though Brittany considered her health insurance coverage to be pretty good, these very systems and structures presented yet another obstacle. She was still getting the runaround about whether or not her midwifery care would be covered and what her options for care would be. I had some, some of them say, no, we'll be covered. The couple of people, I think it was maybe two or three, I think three different representatives I talked to, they said, uh, yeah, it can be covered, but it's going to take a lot of digging, a lot of following up. And yeah, so it just seemed like, okay, it's going to be a challenge. And then there's still the risk that it won't be covered. Still, Brittany kept at it. All of the phone calls and long wait periods gave her a chance to sharpen her questions, figure out what she needed to ask and who she really needed to talk to. Steps that Demetria also encourages her families to do. So I had to learn to be more succinct with my questions and with my responses and learn to use their language to ask the right questions. That helped. And that was a part of how I found out about midwife care and where I did talk to a kind lady. And she goes, well, you know, you can see a midwife. That was early on after I told her a little about my experience. And I go, oh, I would definitely like to you know, meet with a midwife. And the lady I met with, she was very, she was nice, but I don't know. I don't know if though I was the first black person or black people that we actually ever seen or because it it was just always weird. But the main thing from that appointment, I would say, is I knew in my mind that I wanted to have a medicated birth, no in- interventions, you know, so long as everything was going well. And I expressed that to her. That first midwife appointment was far from perfect, but Brittany knew exactly what she was looking for. And well, this just wasn't it. One thing that did make Brittany feel good was that the midwife made eye contact with Rod and engaged with him as much as she did with Brittany. Those seemingly small details left the couple feeling hopeful about their midwife search, even if this first appointment was a little awkward. They crossed their fingers that the next midwife they'd meet would be the one. So that was a difference. And I did mention that to her. I said, well, I want to say thank you for including Rod, including my partner, because we didn't get that from the last two appointments that we had with OBGYN. And um, she did give a recommendation for another midwife because of the birth goal that I had. And the midwife that she was recommending previously owned her own practice. And she also had her, she had water births at home with her kids. And so I'm like, okay, well, she has, you know, an experience similar to what I'm looking for, more on the unmedicated, less intervention side. So yeah, I would like to meet with her. She was really nice. Still, it was just a disconnect. There was a gap. There was just the emotional connection wasn't there. But I felt comfortable moving forward based on her experiences with giving birth, me explaining my birth plan. She was attentive, she listened. There was just the emotional connection wasn't there. It's, it's hard to put into words other than just emotions, you know? You can be nice and then you can show love. And it wasn't like that love. Like, gas me up, pump me up. Can we get a little excited? You know, can we get some oxytocin in the room? That's my mindset on it. Throughout this season, we're highlighting different podcasts that explore various facets of the Black birthing experience. Birth Stories in Color is a podcast for people of color to share their birthing experiences. 
It's a space that celebrates, mourns with, and supports folks of color and their transformation through birth. The show emphasizes the role of storytelling as a way to equip parents. Listen to Birth Stories in Color on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. To join their community, go to birthstoriesincolor.com and follow them on Instagram and Facebook. As Brittany's pregnancy advanced, she started to settle into a healthy rhythm with her new midwife. Brittany enjoyed having more time and space to say what she wanted to say and ask questions freely. And Rod was right by her side throughout the entire process. According to Demetra, that individualized relationship-based care is exactly what parents can expect with the midwife. You know, when you come in, my appointments are 30 minutes, initials are an hour, but those 30 minute appointments cover, you know, your standard vitals to do your blood pressure, your pulse, your pulse ox, your temperature, that's done pretty quick. You, we do a urine dip, we do weight, moms do the weight on their own. Um, And then we do your standard measuring of of your belly and listening to your baby. That can all be done in like five minutes. Once we hit 24, 26 weeks, I feel like we have a good understanding of who I am, who you are, what expectations are and boundaries and stuff like that. And we begin to focus more on things that are coming up, such as screening, um, teaching people what it means to have autonomous care right? Like really explaining the right to autonomy. Yes, we talk about it when you come into care and your intake, but now we're starting to offer you, and I say offer because it is not mandated. I'm offering you the choice of gestational diabetes screening. I'm offering you the choice of um, GBS screening. I'm offering those to you. I'm not telling you. It's very interesting. Partners are usually pretty quiet. Trust me, by the time they're like 36 weeks, like Partners come in with all kinds of shade, like, oh, mm -mm, nope, she didn't do what you told her. She ain't been taking her vitamins. Like, they just spill all the tea. That just goes to show you how significant relationship-based care is. Like, you're really empowering families when you begin to really not just tell them what autonomy means, but you're actually invoking it through shared medical decision-making. This care model where parents get to be active decision makers and have a say in what happens to them and their bodies and how, all of this at the very core of midwifery. And Brittany was enjoying every bit of it. With all of her research, Brittany became really interested in the idea of delivering at a local birth center. But her insurance company wouldn't cover it. And the out-of-pocket costs was just too much for her and Rod. The hospital was the only option. I needed to just kind of let that go. So I just had to grieve that a little bit. And the midwife at the birth center, she was encouraging. She said, you know, it it doesn't, like, you can still have a very beautiful experience at the hospital. I'm thinking, yeah, you're right, I can. I just was focusing around fears and the things that could go wrong. And I just had to then fix my mind on, yes, I can have a beautiful birth experience at a hospital. I'm just going to have to really work hard for it. And I'm going to have to go in there prepared. You know, I have to be my own doctor first. And so by me going in there and knowing the protocols, then that, you know, helps me to be able to ask the right questions and make a birth plan that, a quality birth plan that they can honor and respect. And 
to them it communicates okay they, they, they come in they came in here prepared birth plans are the north star y'all that's why we talk about them so much a birth plan is a personal wish list of how you want your delivery to go from where you give birth to how many people are in the room to your preference for pain management even the little details are included like do you want the lights dimmed while your favorite song plays in the background? And do you want your boo, bae, partner, mama, or friend to feed you ice chips while you wait for your baby's arrival? It can be as specific or as broad as you want to make it. But it's also fluid. Because sometimes shit happens. But you determine when and how it changes. For real though, birth plans are a documented way to hold healthcare workers accountable. They're another resource Black birthing parents can use to exercise their autonomy. As we think about ways that parents can prepare and feel empowered throughout their perinatal journey, the birth plan is just one tool in this larger toolkit. Midwives prepare families for all of it. They're required to do a birth plan because I need them to understand when they make that change of venue for whatever reason, that everything that we have talked about throughout their pregnancy. It doesn't go out the door just because you entered brick and mortar structures and systems. It doesn't. You still have your birthrights intact. So, and you know, and I spend a lot of times talking to partners like, look, y'all can't just fold it up, like <laughs> text them, hold them as soon as y'all hit the hospital and be like, do what they say. Like, no, bro. Nah, it don't work that way. You know, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> let's be real. Like I'm giving you tools too. Like, you, you know, this is what we do. This is what they want. This is what she wants. And really just working with them as a unit. And that is what those conversations look like until they give birth. So there's a lot of conversation. Um, you know, there's a lot of, just a lot of effort and energy put into relationships. And that's, that's what makes midwifery unique. You have to trust black moms. You've got to trust mothers of color. You know clinical data. You know as a midwife what your books and education have taught you. But you don't know her body. She knows her body. So we got to listen. Knowing that Brittany wanted an unmedicated birth, her midwife suggested she look into doula services. After all, Brittany's midwife was just for prenatal care and wouldn't be by her side during delivery. Like midwives, doulas are an integral part of the birth worker community. They're trained professionals who provide physical, emotional, and educational support to a parent throughout their perinatal journey. They're kind of like a childbirth coach. In some cases, they join for prenatal visits, advocate on behalf of the parent's birth plan, and during delivery, they might even use relaxation techniques to ease labor pains. So when she said, you know, you still have a great birth at the hospital, uh, you can look into hiring a doula and they can advocate for you. They can, you know, assist you and support you. And so I began to do research on doulas and we interviewed three different doulas. All of them were very nice. None of them were, looked like me. None of them were black. And as nice as they were, and even the experience that many of them had, there was still something in me. Nothing was like ding, 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 like you found it. This is going to, this is it. This is it. This is the person. I never felt that. And I had to go with my intuition. I just go with, you know, energy and how I feel. But baby, your intuition will never lead you astray. 
your intuition will tell you, mm -mm, don't mess with that one. Cheat, mm -hmm. no, no, that's not going to end well. <laughs> your intuition, <laughs> you got to listen to your intuition. When that little voice is like, mm -mm, nope, mm -mm, exit to the left, you need to pivot and exit to the left. Okay. Number one, intuition. Number two, I do show up as my authentic self. So I, <laughs> when people call me, I'm pretty sure at the beginning, they like, mm -hmm. and at the end, they're like, oh, <laughs> she like black auntie. <laughs> oh, we like her. <laughs> I'm just honest. I'm like, you know, and I will use words like in full transparency. It's important for you to understand this is my philosophy of care. So that way I can give them a tangible tool of, okay, listen, I strongly feel like this is not going to be a good fit for, for us. I feel like in your heart of hearts, this is where you want to be. So let's get you some tools, a doula. Let's get you some, some safeguards in place so that you can enter that space with a sense of preparedness. Like that's super, super important. Without that, it doesn't matter if it's out of, out of hospital birth or it's in hospital. You're going to have a train wreck. So that's super important. Last year, the Black Women's March, and I did a speech on birth rights. And one of my comments in there was, baby girl, if it doesn't feel right, it ain't right. Do your due diligence. Do your homework. Ask people about that provider. Don't just go because you feel like that's the only option. When you say, I'm just going to go because that's the only midwife available or that's the only OB available, you are literally rolling the dice on you and your baby's life, period, period. So lean into that intuition. It's there for a reason. With just two months left in her pregnancy, Brittany had to make peace with the fact that she wasn't going to have a doula present at the hospital. So in addition to her midwifery prenatal care, where she was learning all these new skills, Brittany started thinking about other ways she could mentally and emotionally prepare for what was about to come. So Roe was due August 23rd, and I ended up having him August 19th, so a few days before my due date. And for me, I wanted to work as close to my due date as possible, but I also wanted to leave time to just center myself. I was already going inward. Like the last month of work, I'm just like, I don't really need anybody to talk to me right now. Just let me be in my space. I was watching birth, birth videos on YouTube, you know, like just immersing myself in it so I could prepare my mind. I needed to know what birth looked like. I felt I needed to know what it looked like in order to do it. I mean, I know my body is going to do what it needs to do, but in order to focus in and to prep my mind so I wasn't like all over the place is to know, to, to see it, to see what it looked like. Every day I was inputting something to do with birth, pregnancy, preparation. I also did some body work as well. That helped a lot with minimizing achiness. I didn't have a lot of aches and stuff. I mean, I felt great for the majority of my pregnancy. Um, but other than that, I mean, I felt great. I felt good, felt beautiful, and loved the way people would respond to me growing my baby. As prepared as she was, Brittany was still a little nervous. I, I had very few. I had a few times where I remember asking, it was a couple, maybe it was two times I asked Rod, 
I said, do you really think I can do it? And he goes, yeah, you can do it. He said, do you believe you can do it? And I go, yeah, like with that, like, I, I don't know why I just feel that I can do it. And so it was just a little, I think I was just getting a little nervous because like one way or another, this baby has to come out. So the night before uh, I went into labor, it was the night before I started having some leakage and I wasn't sure what was happening. I was nervous. And I'm like, oh my gosh, my water might've broke, but it wasn't a lot. It was just like a little bit. So another thing too, that we were intimate that night and I'm pretty sure that kind of helped to trigger something. <laughs> so then the next morning I woke up and I felt a little bit crampy and I still had a little bit of leakage. So I'm just thinking, okay, well, we're getting closer to the time, but I never, I didn't freak out. I didn't, you know, I just let him know, let Rod know that, you know, I was having some discharge. Brittany knew it was time. Her body was preparing to go into labor. 11, 11.30 is when I was starting to feel contractions, but I still wasn't sure. I mean, now it's like, well, duh, yeah, those are contractions. But I'm like, I don't know if this is, especially if it keeps happening. And it's like, obviously that, <laughs> you know, obviously you're having first baby. And so I'm just not sure about it. So Rod recommended that I call the hospital or call one of the nurses on call, just let them know. So I did. On the way to the hospital, I had some contractions and I just, I would moan through the, through it. I was just letting my body, surrendering to my body and letting whatever needed to happen and come out, letting it, you know, happen. And then I decided to call my mom and let her know and ask her if she would say a prayer for us. So she said a prayer over the phone and we got to the hospital. It was 736 when they checked me and I was six centimeters dilated. This is what I did appreciate about the hospital. I didn't have to, neither of us had to fill out a bunch of paperwork. I gave them my insurance card and they went to go get a room ready prep so that they could check me and see, you know, how far along that I was. And that was it. It was very smooth. But again, we prepared. So we went on the hospital tour. We knew what the rooms looked like. We knew how many outlets we would have available to us. We knew that we could have a diffuser. You know, we knew we could have music. So we were just, we already knew, we already had a plan. We just needed a room. Once they settled into their room, their care team checked in about the couple's birth plan. We had that. So we had, that was the only thing Rod brought in with us is the birth plan. And we had multiple copies. We had like four or five copies. I had a sign that I was going to put on the door. I never felt the need to do that because of how, you know, I was treated. I felt good. So I didn't end up putting that on the door, but we did make sure that, you know, they had a birth plan. Another nice thing is that I ended, we ended up getting a, a black nurse. And this was my first encounter with a black birth worker throughout my experience. So I'm just like, hey, sis, in my mind, like, hey, yes, <laughs> really excited. <laughs> and uh, so she's like, yeah, I got her. I got her. And um, even her voice, it was just her. I'm like, yes, this is great. This is awesome. So <laughs> we went to the room, still just, you know, moving through my contractions. And I put on there that I didn't want any IV fluids or anything like that. I wanted to drink water. I had snacks and stuff for, you know, for me to keep my energy up. A natural, unmedicated delivery was included in Brittany's birth plan. She wanted to feel free and in control as she welcomed her baby into the world. And an IV Heplog 
wasn't part of that plan. Brittany imagined the heplock would tether her to one of those big metal IV poles with bags of fluid and tubing all over the place. But actually, IV heplocks are a lot simpler. The small needle just goes into the forearm or hand without any tubing or poles. It gives nurses immediate vein access in case of an emergency. So I had a quick conversation with Rod and he's like, I mean, they're not giving you an IV. It's just a heplock. So if you feel comfortable, then I would just, I would say to do it. And so I decided to get the heplock. Um, mind you, I'm still having contractions, you know, every so often, five to seven minutes apart. So I'm on the or medicine ball, I'm on the medicine ball and I'm like leaning against the bed, just kind of swaying and rocking, moving. And uh, the nurse, she brings in the anesthesiologist and she goes, so um, I brought in one of the best. He like, he's really good at, you know, putting the IV in. And so I know you don't, you said you don't like needles, so we'll just make it real smooth. And then at that point, he, the anesthesiologist asked me if I wanted to hear anything about an epidural. And I said, no, I don't. And so he goes, okay, so we'll just do the heplot. We'll, you know, be real quick and then get out of your hair. Anyway, my eyes were closed. I'm rocking. And he says, okay, so I'm going to, or when this contraction stops, then I'm going to go ahead and, and do it. And I'll go, okay. He's like, we'll just do it in between contractions. And I'm, to me, I'm like, great, sounds awesome. So I let him know, like, okay, I have a contraction coming. I'm like moving my hand a little bit. And he's like, no, 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 like, we just have to just, we have to get this in. So then he continues to try and stick me and get a vein while I'm st- like swaying on the ball and like trying to not move, but still trying to, you know, move through the contraction. Because uh, it's hard to, to just sit still when you have that much power moving through your body. The anesthesiologist ended up administering the Heplock. And it's not that Brittany wasn't expecting it. It's just that it happened so fast and differently than what they agreed upon. I feel that he wanted to hurry up and get it done. I didn't like that he, like in the beginning, he affirmed and said, like we made verbal agreement that he would do it in between contractions. And then all of a sudden it changed because you decided to get impatient. It's like, and I don't even, and I didn't even want the headlock. It seems minor, but to me, when I think about it, it's like, no, you totally disrespected my space and I, like that, those are little small things that we let people, we let them get away with, and then they become bigger things, and that's not okay. If someone says stop, you need to stop. There was no emergency. There was no reason for him to have to do that. These seemingly small, but not small at all, violations of patient trust during labor are things that Demetra not only hears about often, but actively prepares her families to push back against during their hospital stay. And you'd be surprised at the questions that come up. Like most people understand what induction is and pitocin is and, and you know, what breaking of the waters are. But what they don't understand are, are the violations that take place inadvertently to our bodies, right? Um, like having a nurse come in and, you know, pulling the sheet back to do an exam and not giving you that modesty and privacy just because you're having a baby. That doesn't mean that you need to be fully exposed for an exam. Like something so simple to me could be devastating to somebody who's birthing. You know what I mean? So just really walking them through the different things that they can potentially be exposed to and, and how to handle it. Aside from that anesthesiologist, Brittany's labor was going as well as could be. Her contractions weren't letting up. This baby was on the way. The labor itself I, it was good, too. Was, contractions were, were very intense, uh, but I never felt, I was never suffering or in agony 
I had a few moments where I felt pain and that's when I was like freaking out at moments where like with pressure or I would, but then once I would get back and focus on my breathing, I was good to go. And I was saying that at the end, I'm like, okay, I've got to get him out now because I was so tired. I'm like, it's time. And I was kind of talking to him in a way, but not directly to him. I was more so talking to Ryan, like, okay, it's time for him to come out. He's got to come out now. And I'm pretty sure, I think, I believe that he heard me and he knew. And I even probably knew that it was about to happen. On August 19th, 2019, after nine months of meticulous planning, research, and prenatal midwifery care, Brittany and Rod were finally saying hello to their healthy baby boy, Roe. Once he came out, I just felt a lot. I felt relief. And then I felt the warm, warmness of him. Oh, it was funny. <laughs> so when he came out, she grabbed him and like she lifted him up. And so he was facing me and I was looking at him and he peed. So that, that part was really funny and super cute. I was just relieved. Like, I think my first thought was like, oh my gosh, like, okay, he's out. He's here. So at that point, I'm just feeling him and I kind of pull him up closer to me. We did delay cord clamping. So they gave that time to um, let the cord stop pulsating. And at that time, I'm just, you know, talking to him, kissed him. And I just I rubbed him. I was more so just rubbing him and making sure, you know, he had good circulation and blood flow. Rob was able to cut the cord and he was just really warm and I was just comfortable right there. I was tired. So I just, I just wanted to just keep him there and just lay for a little while. And my recovery was great. I had no issues, um, not even much pain. And something that I didn't mention about the nurse is that she didn't provide a lot of physical, like a lot, she didn't provide touch and hands-on. She was more of that spiritual voice and coaching and she was almost like that mother connection that was very helpful with just focusing on your breathing and you know after the contraction it's easy to just kind of like stay tipped you like stay in this state of like whoo like your body is just like it's you have all this energy surging through you and so I would need to be reminded to just like just let your body fall relax and so that was super helpful because that makes a big difference which is kind of like preserving the energy that you do have and just like allowing, you know, your body to just drop. I'm, I, I think our birth experience, it was what it, it should have been because it was really just me and Rod and it's been me and Rod. And so just that's something I always have knowing that he support, like he stepped up, he showed up, he was there. I mean, he didn't leave the room at all. I don't even think he used the bathroom the entire time. So the whole time he was there giving me water giving me a little bit of snacks and giving me the counter pressure and just encouraging me as well around my breath. I'm sharing my story because we need to hear more stories from Black mothers, from Black parents, from Black families. We know that the uh, maternal mortality rate among Black women is extremely high, the highest. We know that the infant death rate infant more infant death rate among black babies is extremely high and so these are conversations that we need to have and it's like we need to hear more of the stories i love how my, my sister describes it as um we have to be willing to have courageous conversations um it's not always easy and comfortable to share your story sometimes it can be triggering 
you know, if you're still dealing with things. So I respect and understand that some people, it, it may take time for them to do that. Um, but I realized that my story is not just about me. And it's only one example. It's an example of actually accomplishing your birth experience, still having to unpack certain challenges and just the overall like battle with the healthcare. Still having to like release that energy, let go of that. Um, so I know if, if I'm going in well prepared and informed of what's going on and I'm still having challenges. I mean, can you imagine someone who's going in and they have no idea what to expect or what to look out for or what to eat? Like, they may not even know. Like, I don't even know the birth plan I want. What do I? They don't know. We don't know. And it's true. For a lot of parents, knowing what to ask, who to ask, where to go for this, where to go for that, it can be a lot. Frankly, it's hard to say what you don't know if you don't know. So hearing from parents like Brittany and midwives like Demetra, they remind us that not only are we not alone as we navigate our reproductive futures, we're also deeply in community with one another, sharing the traditions and practices of our foremothers as we continue to demand justice in the delivery room and outside of it. It's, it's, we can talk about it and we need to because if we don't share our stories, the same things are going to continue to happen. So my hope is that women going into the hospital to have an unmedicated birth, that they now are a little bit more equipped. They have more tools for their toolbox to go in with a certain language or just knowing what to research. And they can go in and come out on the other end, you know, with a great experience. As we all engage in this process of reimagining a society where Black life does indeed matter, it's just as important that we talk aloud about what we want the future of care to look like for Black birthing parents and birth workers. I think the extension would be that more people in the community know that we exist. Like that is important, right? Because onesies and twosies, they're wins. Tens and thousands changes a lifetime. It changes a generation. So what I would like to see in the future would be more of those open access models of care where people can be able to affordably or be covered under insurance and feel safe in the hands of their midwife, but also be able to honor their desires of being in a hospital. I want to see tens of thousands of black moms and dads and partners and people seeing that they have the right to choice and they have the right to be able to say, I want this and I want this and I can have both. This birth work, this expansive community of midwives, doulas, herbalists, acupuncturists, and so many others, it matters. But not only does birth work matter, it's urgent and absolutely essential on our path to Black liberation. Brittany is now a part of this illustrious community. Since the birth of her son, Brittany's completed training to become a lactation consultant and birth doula. I'm taking like a personal responsibility to stand up and, and advocate and share my story and to learn and do different trainings and stuff. It's really like, it's been a passion, but now it's shifted to being part of my purpose. Probably birth matters. And I'm not talking about just vaginally or through via C-section. I'm talking about how we're made to feel and do we feel safe? And does our, our baby feel safe? And also talking about people who didn't feel safe in their births. 
and the trauma that is carried with that. And it's time for us to heal. And she's right. This is our time. This is our time to say no more to the models of care that fail to recognize our humanity. Models that thrive on our death rather than our breath. This is our time to realize that everything we've been looking for already lies within us, within our homes, relationships, and communities. This is a time where we can stop to think about what else, what could be, or even what should be. This is our time to remind folks and ourselves that reproductive freedom is not just a progressive soundbite. We are actively and intentionally pursuing reproductive freedom by any means necessary. Sometimes that means we may have to leave the hospital to do so. But we'll get into that next episode. This episode is dedicated to Shaija Washington, a 26-year-old Black woman who died giving birth to her daughter, Chloe, on July 3rd, 2020, at Woodhill Hospital in Brooklyn, New York. Shaija was a partner, daughter, friend, and mother. She deserved more. She deserved life. And we, along with countless others, are fighting for the lives of Black parents everywhere. Misha Asia, rest in power. Natal is a collab between You Had Me at Black and The Woodshaw. Subscribe, rate, and leave a review wherever you get your podcast. Visit natalstories.com for exclusive content like our community blog and resource hub and donate to our production fund while you're there. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at natalstories. And join the Natal group on Facebook to keep the conversation going. You can find the links to everything in the show notes. Special thanks to Black Mamas Matter Alliance, the University of Southern California Annenberg Center for Health Journalism, and our reporting mentor, Katherine Stifter, the Economic Hardship Reporting Project, our sponsor, Coddle, and Natal advisor, Adiza Egan. Natal is executive produced by us, Martina Abraham-Zalunga and Gabrielle Horton. Tierra Darnell is the editor who puts it all together. Jody Williams and Taylor Hosking, our producers, get the stories. And our sound designer and engineer, Jess Jupiter, hooks it all the way up. 